Would you pray with me as we ask the Lord's blessing on our time in His Word this morning? God of grace, we come to you this morning full of anticipation, knowing that uh, you have much in store for your children. Um, and that store is, is infinite and full in your word. We ask that you would feed us this morning as we come to this wonderful book of James. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who you've sent to um, not only minister to our souls, but to uh, enliven and clarify the scriptures. So we ask that he would come and take these scriptures and make them clear to our minds and hearts and that he would take our hearts and cause them to be soft and receptive. And we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Advent time of year, Christmas time of year, we uh, enjoy this time of year, most of us do, and, and uh, it is uh, something that we look forward to every year. Although this book that we're studying, the book of James, is 2,000 years old, it remains pertinent even during the Advent season. Uh, I would wonder if there's anything more important than knowing whether or not you know for certain that your faith is real, that you know God, that your experience with Him is authentic, it's a saving faith, whether or not the minute after you die, you will be with God. Isn't that of something of most significant importance. I don't think there's much else, is there, that is even close? As the temptation of the season is to get lost in nostalgia and gifts and lights and the feelings that those things bring, James kind of brings us back and uh, helps us smell the spiritual ammonia, as it were, uh, by testing the authenticity of our faith. James has long been the favorite of many who like the practicality of this book. Are you one of those folks who really enjoys the simplicity and the practicality of James? I know many of you have told me that already. We like its useful, memorable, pithy type sayings that are found in the book, like count it all joy when you encounter trials, um, or be slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to become angry, faith without works is dead. Uh, the, the man who can control his tongue is, perfect, is the perfect man, and yet the 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 tongue is something that can set an entire forest ablaze. Things like this, if the Lord wills, then I will do this or do that. You know, all these kind of sayings that we uh, remember about James are wonderful and practical as they are, but they each play an important part in a particular test of authentic faith. And this is what we're studying, the book of James, even at the time of Advent. So, uh, we, up to this point, James chapter 2, verses uh, 1 through 13, um, we just finished there the, the fourth test of authentic faith, but we've covered four tests so far of authentic faith. They are as follows. Your view of trials. Uh, how do you view trials that you encounter? We all encounter them. How do you view them? What do you think of them? Do you embrace trials knowing that God uses them to grow your faith or... Do you resist trials and resent God for bringing hardship into your life? What's your view of trials? Second test of authentic faith is your view of God. Is he a loving heavenly father who desires your best? Or is he some kind of celestial ogre that does everything he can to try to trip you up, try to fool you into sinning? Is he 
one or the other. What's your view of God? How about your view of God's Word? This third test actually has five points in it or five parts to it. Your view of God's Word. Do you receive God's Word with humility? In other words, are you quick to the listening? Are you quick to take every opportunity you can to get the Word of God into your mind and heart? Are you humble enough to realize that you need God's Word? So do you receive it with humility? How about this? Do you receive it with purity? There are things in the Christian life that actually impede the intake of God's Word. Uh, those things are things of the world, things that would maybe draw your attention away from Christ. Um, are you quick to purify those things out of your life so that there's nothing impeding the intake of God's Word? That's the second part of this third test, your view of God's Word. Thirdly, do you receive it with obedience? That is, do you receive the God's Word with obedience? Are you not just a hearer, but a doer of the Word? And the next, the next part of this uh, third test of authentic faith is, do you receive it with action? That sounds very similar uh, to the third part. Do you receive it with obedience? But action meaning this, as much as we are doers, not just hearers of the Word, are we doers with the right motive? Why do you do the Word? Is it to just check off boxes in your Christian life? Or is there something more substantial? Do you receive the Word with action? And then finally, do you receive it with conviction? Does the Word of God actually, when it fills your heart and mind as, as it dwells in us richly, does, does it actually determine how we're going to think and live? Does the Word of God actually help you prioritize how you'll spend your time, how you'll spend your money? Are you a person of conviction over the word spoken and read? So what is your view of the word? And then finally last week and the week before, we studied your view of others. This is the fourth test in the book of James, your view of others. Do you view everyone the same or do you play favorites with those you're comfortable with? Do you treat people impartially as God does or is your life full? of partiality when it comes to the treatment of people. What's your view of others? So, let me summarize our, our uh, tests of authentic faith by asking, how has your soul fared through these tests? Have you been more assured of the authenticity of your faith, or has maybe James pierced your conscience a time or two, um, which is, of course, a good thing? You know, you be one of those who, who's experienced some doubts about your faith as a result of this study um, for the past few months. And if so, the Holy Spirit's accomplished in your life what he has designed this book to accomplish, for you to examine your faith. You know, I, I grew up being taught that you shouldn't, you shouldn't question your faith. You should never doubt your faith. In fact, uh, John, when you became a Christian, I think you should write that date in your Bible right here on the front page and and whenever doubts come, you just open your Bible and read the date that you were saved and put all those doubts to rest. As if somehow, uh, my recollection of the day I prayed the sinner's prayer is confirming of my faith. <laughs> that is not the way we are to examine our faith or deal with doubts in the Christian life. We're actually to engage these things. We're to examine our faith. Paul said to see, in fact, whether or not you be in the faith. So that's what James is doing here. He's simply asking us to look at our lives, examine our faith to see if it's authentic. We've covered four of them so far. 
And uh, at the end of this fourth test, in verse 13, it says this, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let me read that again. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. How would you hold up to that test? If this uh, scrutinized your life, how would that go? For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown mercy. Have you shown mercy towards people? James wants us to think about that. Evidently, those who have authentic faith are those who are merciful and gracious towards others because they've received that kind of mercy and grace from God. So, using James 2.13 as a springboard this morning, I want to try to uh, explain the gospel as plainly as I can as I tie it to the Advent season. All right? We're going to try to tie in James 2.13 to the gospel. And that'll be the easy part. Now tying it to Advent is the challenge of the day. So let's see what happens here as we unpack this verse in light of Advent and see if we can get a clear glimpse of the gospel. As much as current culture abhors authority, abhors the institution, uh, there are undeniable authorities and institutions in our life. Whether or not you like authority, legitimate authority exists. Whether or not you like the institution, legitimate institution exists. Let me, let me share with you what it is. The legitimate institution, the ultimate legitimate institution is the kingdom of God, right? The ultimate authority is the king of that kingdom, Jesus Christ. And so we have, whether we like it or not, authority and institution in this world. And we've learned as we've studied this book of James that this authority is a righteous judge, and he happens to judge. The Bible says that this judge is holy, just, righteous, unchanging, and perfect in his justice and fair in his judgment. As we learned last week, this judge is impartial in all of his dealings. There's no possible way that the God of the Bible won't get everything, and I mean every deal of every detail of everything, right. He is a perfect judge. We have no fear, or maybe I should say we might have fear, if he is perfectly just. Depends how you think about this. We can certainly say that even from the small book of James, we can develop a fairly solid theology. Now, let's think a little bit about our present celebration of Advent and this verse. What is Advent? Advent is the celebration of the Advent or arrival or coming of God to this planet. So, when you hear the, that word used or consider the celebration of Advent, it is simply a celebration of the arrival of God to this earth in human form. So I have two main points and they're, and they're outlined for you in the bulletin if you desire to follow along there. The first is this, Advent reveals judgment. Now, how does the advent of God on earth reveal judgment? What, what is it about the arrival of Jesus 2,000 years ago um, 
alert us to the reality of judgment. Now, probably the last thing that comes to your mind when you're fawning over baby Jesus is the idea of judgment. When we look at baby Jesus in either picture or story form, we don't go, oh, yay, judgment. It's not the way it works in our minds. But we need to consider what it was that motivated God to insert himself into human history. Why the advent? Why baby Jesus? First of all, advent acknowledges man's sin. How so? When God created mankind, and all creation for that matter, he planned to demonstrate the glory of his goodness, his mercy, his grace, his kindness, by entering into his own creation as one of us. It has always been God's plan, before anything was ever created, to leave his heavenly home and come to earth as a human being. That wasn't plan B, because Adam and Eve messed up, and now, now what am I going to do? No, this was always God's plan, to become one of us, to advent one day with his people. And of course, this advent assumes that he would need to do so. Why? I mean, he just, he just didn't come for a visit to see how we're doing. Why did Jesus show up? Well, he showed up, as you know, because man in his sin became separated from God. And the only remedy was to come to earth by as himself, as God, to mediate reconciliation between God and man. How does reconciliation take place? Don't both parties need legitimate representation? Yes, of course they do. And so in this need of reconciliation, who represents man? Jesus, the man. Who represents God? Jesus, the God. Hence, God-man. This is why Jesus had to be God. This is why we value uh, doctrines like the virgin birth. This is why we, it is important that Mary was fully human. This is why all these doctrines surrounding the birth of Christ are critically important for which we will go to the mat on because of this truth. We need a God-man as a mediator, not a exalted man or an angel maybe. No, we need a God-man to represent both parties legitimately so that reconciliation can actually take place. Without this, there is no reconciliation. And so we fight to the death for those doctrines. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 and 22 say this, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, that is, you were unreconciled, you were doing evil deeds, look at, look at what it says, He, Christ, has now reconciled, how? In His body, He needed to be a man. In His body by, of flesh, by His death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. In, order to, in other words, in order to present us acceptable to God. God had to become man and provide this in his flesh by his death. So the Advent acknowledges man's sin. Secondly, the Advent acknowledges man's helplessness. I mean, think about human history. The advent of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago demonstrates that we are totally incapable of working out our sin problems that separate us from God. God has given mankind ample opportunity to resolve, resolve our issues, and yet they remain unresolved. 
Throughout human history, we have failed time after time, age after age, in trying to remedy our issues, our sin problem, work them out, rectify them. Man has lived through every conceivable dispensation and has proven that they, we, cannot manage any arrangement. How did things go in the perfection of the Garden of Eden? Not well. We blew that one. We failed when it came to the age of self-governing, which followed the Garden of Eden. We failed in the age of law following Moses. We fail in the age of grace following Christ. Mankind has demonstrated throughout human history that we are incapable of justly governing ourselves. We're helpless, hopeless, lost in this world. So what do we do about this? Sin has totally disrupted our existence and alienated us from our Creator. Listen to Romans 8, 3 through 4. And look at the first four words of these verses. Very important. For God has done. You might want to underline underline those four words in your Bible. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. We're helpless. We can't do it. Even with God's law, we can't do it. But what, what we're unable to do, God has done, how? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He looked like sinful flesh, but he was actually perfect flesh. He, he sent him for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Here's the point. God had to show up. We were helpless without him. The advent is required if we're going to ever reconcile ourselves with God. God had to show up. God had to do what we've proven we can't do. Thirdly, Advent acknowledges God's right to judge. Now, what is, what is a basic underlying assumption of judgment? Law, right? Broken law. Everybody, that, that, you don't even have to talk about that too long. Of course, without law, there's, there's, if there's no law, there's no, nothing happened. Nothing wrong happened. But the fact is we have law, God's law. What is the purpose of God's law? First, I have three things I want to tell you about the purpose of God's law as it relates to this particular point. Advent acknowledges God's right to judge. He has a right to judge because the law has been broken. So what's the purpose of the law? Number one, to reveal God's character. To reveal God's character. Think about the Ten Commandments. Do you know that the first four commandments are about God's perfection? He's perfect in his being. He's not an idolater in any way. He is, he is all that, that laws one through four consist of. He's perfect. Laws five through ten speak of his perfect morality and goodness. So laws one through four speak of his perfect person, and laws five through ten speak of his perfect moral goodness. Do you remember how Jesus summarized the law? Yeah, he says God is perfect, so we must love him completely. Secondly, man is valuable, so we must love them also. That's how Jesus defined or uh, 
distinguish the law. And so we have this idea, what is the purpose of God's law? To reveal his character. The law simply shows us who God is. Secondly, the second purpose of the law is to condemn the guilty. Con- condemn the guilty. Romans 7 speaks of this clearly, verses 7 through 9. What shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin dies dead. Lies dead, rather. It I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. It's like when you're driving through Montana. I don't know if this is still true, but most people act like it. There's no speed limit on the main highways. There's no speed limit. I don't know. Is that still true in Montana? It used to be that way. 85? 80? There used to be no speed limit. No speed limit signs were posted. So you go 90, you're not breaking the law because there's no law. And then you come into the state of Washington. And all of a sudden you become a lawbreaker. Just living in Washington makes you a lawbreaker. The law, the purpose of the law is to condemn us. So as we think about judgment and advent listen to Romans 6.23 for the wages of sin the wages of the law if you break the law here's what happens what is it death okay now listen this is a key point the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus the advented one the one who showed up in person in human flesh Colossians 2 13 and 14, and you who were once dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of flesh, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt. Someone's keeping a record of law breaking that stood against us with its legal demands. God set this aside. Jesus set this aside. How? By nailing it to the cross. So the Advent, friends, demonstrates that, that Jesus Christ that God has a right to judge. He showed up. Now, listen to the third purpose of the law. The first was to show us God's character. The second was to show us the, the rightness of judgment or to condemn us. The third is to lead us to Christ. This is the point of the law. Says this in Galatians 3.24, the purpose of the law here. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. Why the law? So that you'll recognize your hopeless, helpless state and come running to Jesus. When you look at the law's requirements, we we don't have to look too long, do we? (laughs) To recognize we can't pull it off. And so what do you do? You really just... Keep sinning with abandon or look for help, one of the two. And if you're in the room here, it's because you've looked for help. We come running to Christ. This is what the purpose of the law is. So, Advent 
is closely connected to judgment. Now let's look, at, let's look how Advent trumps judgment. Again, back to James 2.13. The last sentence in James 2.13 reads, Mercy triumphs over judgment. So now all we got to do is figure out how the Advent's connected to mercy, and that's not hard, is it? <laughs> no, this is really easy. As serious and powerful as sin is, and as much as God is just in his judgment, there is something more powerful than sin. To which all we say, praise God. There is something more powerful than sin. There is something that trumps judgment, and this is the focus of Advent. This is the focus of James 2.13. Romans 5.20 says this, Now the law came to increase the trespass. That happened. But where sin increased, praise God, grace abounded all the more. So no matter how much the law emphasizes your sin, grace comes along and outdoes it. In James 2.12, we read that there is judgment for sin. But in verse 13, it says that God has mercy on us anyway. So how does Advent demonstrate this benevolence towards mankind, even us sinners? How does the Advent demonstrate God's benevolence towards us who sin? Keep in mind what John called Jesus in John 1.14. He called him grace. Jesus is grace and truth. Okay, keep that in mind as I, as I walk you through this. So, we're talking about how Advent trumps Justice, I mean, yeah, how Advent trumps judgment. In Advent, number one, in Advent we see God's mercy. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5 identifies God as a merciful being, God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. How is it that God's mercy is revealed in, in the Advent? Let me read another one for you. And by the way, this is from the New Living Translation, but don't panic. We're not changing here at the church. I just wanted to use this for emphasis' sake. Romans 3, 23 through 25, in the New Living Translation, which is a good translation, by the way. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus, the one who came at Advent. He does this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood, his blood that he got from his mother. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. So how is God's mercy revealed in the Advent? The Advent, and God showed up with flesh and blood for the purpose of dying. So what is the extent of God's mercy? You know, I had my sermon all done on Friday, and I was rejoicing over this fact um, and enjoying that. And then on, on Saturday when I was helping my wife, help, helping her decorate the house, um, this thought came to me. You know, you got a room full of conservative evangelicals who claim a lot of the reformed doctrines of the faith. You know, 
mercy's not big on our list, right? And sometimes we avoid talking about it. Um, but let me, let me try to sh show you here why mercy is so important even for those who've already received God's mercy and yet blow it continually. All right? <clears throat> we all know that um, in his mercy, God sent Jesus, our Savior, into the world to pay the penalty of our sin, right? Um, to, to, to pay the penalty that we owe. We know that God is merciful and he forgives all the sins of everyone who comes to Christ by faith. But does God's mercy extend to us after we are saved and continue in sin? So you've received God's mercy at the point of your conversion. You've had a wonderful uh, honeymoon, as it were, with God in his forgiveness and mercy. And then sooner or later you find yourself sinning again. Not too long after conversion. What do you do with that? What does God do with that? Does he take it out on you? Um, do you think that he punishes us? you think that he gives us the, the cold shoulder, the quiet treatment? You know, you're, you're spitting on my, my son and what he did for you on Calvary, and now you're back at, back at it again, back sinning again? What, what kind of thanks is that for what I've done for you? How, what does God do with us when we've blown it again after the great experience of mercy during conversion? Well, friends, listen to me closely for those of you who struggle with this. Um, how well do you know the friend of sinners? How well do you know the God of mercy? How well do you know the Father who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love? How well do you know the, the Father of the prodigal son? Remember how he acted towards his son who had totally spit on him? How well do you know him? Do you know that he does not hold grudges? That he does not punish us for the sins that his son died for? You see, friends, judgment was had. There is no getting out of judgment ever. God just doesn't look the other way when you come to faith in Christ. No, he, he takes out his judgment on his son. Friends, he, he does not punish us for sins that were laid on his son on Calvary. And keep in mind, every sin was laid on him at Calvary. Past, present, and future. He, the Bible, even in the Old Testament, tells us that he does not treat us as our sins deserve. He does not withhold his mercy from those who are his blood-bought children. Friends, his mercy is eternal and infinite. He, will, he, he never, ever lays the sin that Christ died for back on us. Even the ones that we have yet to commit. His infinite mercy is such a wonderful gift.
This is why we sing songs like Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, right? But now what? We're white as snow. Does that mean you're without sin? No. It means in God's eyes, he's laid all of your sin on Christ, past, present, and future. You are white as snow in God's eyes. All to him I owe. What's that mean? It means understanding this important little doctrine of the mercy of God changes everything. In, a, in Advent, secondly, we see God's forgiveness. Not only do we see his mercy, not treating us as our sins deserve, but we see forgiveness of all these sins. Again, from the New Living Translation in Romans 5, but there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. Two different things, Adam's sin and God's gracious gift in Christ. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many, all of us, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many who through this other man, Jesus Christ. So Adam's sin and our voluntary, part, voluntary participation brought sin to us. All this sin came to us in Adam, through Adam, and we, we voluntarily participate. But in Christ Jesus... All is forgiven. All is forgiven. And of course, this comes through the one who came 2,000 years ago to Mary. In Advent, we see thirdly and finally God's glory. Now, there is nothing more glorious than the Advent and all things associated with it. This is what brings God glory. God is certainly glorious in his being. God is glorious in his environment. Heaven is glorious. The angels are glorious. The universe is glorious. But nothing compares to the glory of the advent. This infinite, most powerful being whose very essence we cannot comprehend, became one of us. Listen to what Jesus said a few hours before he went to Calvary. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Seems like a reasonable request. But he didn't ask that. Jesus said, for this very purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. I will glorify it again. Jesus said, the God of glory, this judge, said, for this purpose, I have come. To die. That's why Jesus was born. Friends, what a glorious sight that is to the heart. God's entry into the human race, into human history, assumes our need for him to do so. But it also assumes something infinitely glorious. He came because he actually loves us. <laughs> I 
the God of the universe, this transcendent one, his existence is without measure, loves us. Friend, I think if we could grasp just a teaspoonful of the significance of this, it would transform us forever. We, we would leave here today with a fresh vision of life and our place in this world. I think it would reshuffle our priorities in every conceivable way. It would immediately fade all the things that the world is tempting us with and trying to draw us into. Advent triumphs over judgment completely. James 2.13 says, Mercy triumphs over judgment. And you know how it does, how does mercy triumph over judgment? God's not, like I said, looking the other way. God is laying all of our sin, all, everything that deserves judgment on Christ, the God of the advent. What a glorious thought. In God's righteous judgment, he takes all of your sin, all of mine, places it on Christ, the God of the manger. Wow. Let me conclude with this verse from 2 Corinthians. For our sake... God made him, that is, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him you and I might become the righteousness of God. Let's thank God for these things. Father, we are overwhelmed with your mercy grace and goodness towards us. Father, we're, we are so undeserving of all these blessings that we've seen associated with the Advent. Thank you that in your mercy, Jesus Christ trumps our appointment with judgment, that he has taken all on himself into any who will believe, any who will put their faith and trust in him, all of our sins will be paid for on Calvary. God, do that here this morning for anyone who has yet to come to you by faith, that they would revel in this merciful God of, of the Advent and rests assured in his grace and goodness towards them. Father, do this for us, please, this morning, all of us, that we'd be reminded of your grace and goodness and mercy, and that we would be changed from the inside out from this day forward, considering the mercy demonstrated to us in the coming of Jesus Christ, our Savior, 2,000 years ago. Bless us now, Father, as we come to your table. In Jesus' name, amen.